Hello, everyone. Robert Polly here with the 7th Avenue Project. Well, show business may be full of big personalities and extravagant talents, but I think we can all agree that there has never been anybody quite like Orson Welles. He changed movies forever after shaking up the worlds of theater and radio when he was just in his teens and early 20s. He could write, act, direct, edit, even paint. He could seemingly do anything, anything that is except work within the confines of the commercial film industry. And he was, as you probably know, a world-class talker, a crackling conversationalist. If you didn't know that, you will find all the evidence you need in a new book called My Lunches with Orson. It collects some of the riveting and revealing conversations, to steal a line from the dust jacket of the book, that Orson Welles had with his friend and fellow filmmaker Henry Jaglum. The two met for lunch just about every week at L.A.'s Ma Maison restaurant during Welles's final years, right up to his death in 1985. Henry Jaglum taped much of their table talk, and now some of those tapes have been transcribed and edited into a book by the film historian Peter Biskind. The book catches Welles in all his fascinating complexity. Learned, hilarious, impish, irascible, disarmingly honest and mischievously deceitful, stubborn, generous, and always wicked smart. And I could apply many more adjectives, but I'll spare you. Well, today we're going to hear from Henry Jaglum about his relationship with Orson Welles. And as Peter Biskin writes in the introduction to the new book, Jaglum and Welles were something of an odd couple. Wells was in his 60s, Jaglum in his 30s when they first bonded. Wells was a legend, struggling to get back into the game and show up the doubters in Hollywood, whereas Jaglum never wanted much to do with Hollywood in the first place and preferred to make his own low-budget independent films. Two of those films feature Orson Wells, by the way, A Safe Place, which came out in 1971, and Someone to Love, Wells' last screen appearance, which was released in 1987. Well, anyway, Henry Jaglum and Orson Welles were fast friends, and Henry took it upon himself to rehabilitate Orson's image, getting him press coverage, trying to arrange financing for his many projects, and finagling meetings with the suits and money men. He became, writes Peter Biskind, Welles's sounding board, confessor, producer, agent, and biggest fan. I'll let Henry Jaglum take it from here. This really was such a wonderful relationship, and he- he really, you know, allowed me in and shared with me a kind of aspect of his thinking and his feeling that he had held very close to his chest with a lot of people. He had been very much a, a presenter with these people, uh, uh, even, you know, the people who did books on him. He talked about the professional things, but he was always very careful and kind of crafty about what he would and wouldn't talk about. And with me, it was just like we were able to bring up anything. It was so relaxing, he said to me once, to not be thinking about what he was saying and worrying how it would read, because we, you know, he was going to later on, at some point in the future, as he said, when he no longer could direct, he was going to use all those tapes uh, to, to remind him of things which he would be able to employ in his autobiography. Mm. So there was an ease to them, you know, and a, and a, a, a truthfulness to them. Uh, not that Austin wasn't a show-off, of course, <laughs> but, but not not trying to make points or anything. And, and certainly not thinking he's securing this for the, for the record and being very willing to be very, in some cases, unpleasant about some of, some of my friends. 
I have a few people who haven't spoken to me since the book. I was kind of wondering about that. Of course, the the thing that the media picked up on maybe most of all is some of the gossip, some of the catty yeah. stuff about fellow movie stars, about other people in the business. Do you think Orson would have been happy or unhappy to have that show up? In, I in think he would have loved it. <laughs> I think he would have loved it because he loved to to be catty. He loved to say things, and then we would argue about people, uh, and I would defend some of these people. But it, it's unfair in other ways because people who did very much help him, like Peter Bogdanovich, and who was very, very much his supporter for a long time until he could not, in fact, get anything done for him. And then Orson turned on him, and and, and uh, it's so unfair what he says about Bogdanovich. That's the one thing I regret, especially since Peter is one of my oldest friends and and really went out of his way to help uh, as well as he could to help Orson. And there's a lot of sort of bitchy uh, kind of... Um, resentful, uh, sort of sad comments that come out of, you know, a life when things aren't going too well. Mm. And when people don't jump to uh, help you in many ways, who you thought would. So at this point in the 80s, when um, you were recording these conversations over lunch with Orson Welles, Orson was regarded by a lot of people out there as washed up, right? Sure. Yeah, my big job was to make them realize that he was still Orson Welles. And he, I took him to the Cannes Film Festival in 83 and created big spontaneous press conferences to show the people how much the regular audiences everywhere and everywhere in the world wanted to see more Orson Welles films. And uh, there was a simple economic thing holding it back, which was that none of his films had ever made any money. He understood that. He didn't expect... He always, when he was promised money from the French film industry or from some Hollywood outfit, he said, that's not going to happen. But what he thought would happen was that his fellow actors would rally and that they would come through and they, they would be the ones who for sure uh, would make it possible. He never occurred to him that they would say no when their names were critical to get the financing. And one by one, that's what happened, even some of my closest friends. Well, you know, he had a reputation of being impossible, I guess, at that point. Not only would he blow your budget, but he might not finish the editing. I mean, these, I'm just talking about the... But that was not true. None right. of that was true. I mean, I'd worked with, I worked with him twice on my first picture. Uh, well, all he did was help me deal with, uh, with conservative unions who were very limited, and he gave me great advice and made me get through that movie, and then his last movie. And again, he was anything, but uh, once he thought you were doing something interesting, once he thought you were what he would consider an artist rather than just a hack trying to make a film, he was the most cooperative, the most helpful person possible with all his knowledge, all his information, all his thoughts of way to do it. He was like a great creative ally. And... Uh, it's just not fair to imagine him as sort of this beaten-up, uh, non-functioning guy because he did try to put a lot of films together. He could get the financing. He was just no good at financing, which is why I was forced to step in, and I'm not brilliant at financing myself, but I but I financed on a very low level. I'm able, I like to make films. He always said my great good luck was that I like to make films with people sitting around talking about their lives. And he likes to make he likes to make films, as he said, 
with elephants <laughs> coming over the Alps, uh, you know, having Hannibal decide whether or not he was going to attack Rome. I was going to ask you that, Henry. If, if I were to pick out two people whose films, at least on the surface, are um, completely different, it would be you and Orson Welles. He, yes. he likes these grand canvases. You like these very intimate yep. scenes. He yep. likes these intricately plotted and planned films, uh, unbelievably orchestrated, and you like spontaneity and improvisation. Yep. Um, yeah, it was most unlikely. That's why when Lamont printed that that big article, they said had said to him, "You you two make films so differently, and you're from such different generations, and you see the world so differently. Why are why are you so close? Why are you having lunch every day? Why are you collaborating?" We had a film company called Well Jag, and we were trying to put on you know different things. And his answer to them made big headlines in Paris when he said. Henry and I are girlfriends. <laughs> and what he meant was we were able to talk about emotional stuff. We were talking about personal stuff. With everyone else, he was talking about the making of movies. And uh, and there are certain men that he'd like to sit around, like with Warren Beatty and some others, and they were talking about, like, women and who had fucked who and, and, you know, that man talk thing. But with me... He was open for some reason uh, to the area that interests me, which is feelings. And he was very sharing of, of his vulnerabilities and, and of his needfulness and of his fearfulness. Uh, and we became very close the way that usually it's like two women become. Mm. You guys in your conversations, um, as they show up in this book, talk about gender stuff. Uh, and he has some very interesting comments on masculinity and femininity. Uh, at one point, Orson Welles says, Shakespeare was clearly tremendously feminine. Every man who is any kind of artist has a great deal of female in him. Yes, he always believed that. A, a comment you made on, on the DVD of A Safe Place, your first movie, sticks in my head when you talk about feelings and your interest in feelings in film. You uh, said, when I came to Hollywood, it seemed to me that men were making films for boys. That's true. Yeah, they were. They were not interested. I mean, the, the, the boys were going to movies over and over again, so they were their popular audience. And there was frequently the men who were making the movies were just big boys themselves. So the subjects that interested them and that interested their audiences were adventures and, uh, you know, outside, external, very little to do with the feelings and the emotions and the inner lives, let alone the outer lives of women. And one of the things I determined when I started making movies with a safe place was if I got to do anything like I was hoping to get to do to try to really make one movie after another which would record the life as I knew it, uh, it would be to center many of the films on, on women and on their experiences because it was just the biggest neglected area that Hollywood had just overlooked and considered demographically uh, you know, uh, not valuable, but they wouldn't make money on it because boys went to movies over and over again. And so uh, I fell into that kind of just by seeing a, a, a big space open and by wanting myself to see women's stories, stories about women's lives, which were very, very, I still are, very rarely shown on the, on the nation's screens. And, and how did Orson feel about that? He similarly was very interested in, in in women, and he, as he said, he felt that he operated 
as a woman in terms of his creative work. He, he felt that all artists, real, real artists, had a lot of the feminine in them, and their art, the specific uh, examination of art, was the use of their feminine. He, he, he defied me, we used to play a game, to uh, find a really important artist who was truly what he called butch. <laughs> and we used to have this game. And I would point out somebody like Hemingway, and then he'd come up the next day with a photograph of Hemingway as a child. Dressed in girls' dressed clothes. In girls' clothes by yes. his mother and said that you don't think that affected him, and you don't think that affected his sensibility and so on. So the, uh, we, we, had, we had a lot of f- fun. He was the greatest playmate a kid could have, you know? A kid. I was, I was in my 30s, but I was frustrated with what they were trying to get me to do uh, in Hollywood. And I had, you know, an agent who was trying to make me go to South America to do a, an hour-long movie. What, what is her name? The girl that made 10. She had approved the script of mine, and she was, there was a comic strip character about a girl news reporter. Oh, you mean uh, Bo Derek? Yeah, Bo Derek. And right. I was at the biggest agency at that time, despite the failure of the incredible failure of, of my first couple of films. They thought they had something in me because I was very good with the actresses, and all of the actresses wanted to work with me, and Streisand wanted to work, and everybody. But Bo Derek was what they came up with eight months in Brazil <laughs> with Bo Derek playing a cartoon character, newspaper woman. <laughs> Which is when I left the agencies and decided I really didn't belong in the in their system at all. You know, what would you say is feminine in the work of Orson Welles? Oh, very feminine. I think, I think his his understanding of human nature and his feeling for what people are going through underneath the actions that they seem to be going through uh, is is a very feminine insight and. Uh, I think he doesn't have that hard edge of male removal from all the considerations that are not pragmatic. I mean, he's, his very lack of pragmatism, uh, his very lack of narrow, narrowly defined uh, methodology and uh, process mm. was very female. I was watching Citizen Kane again the other night and noting that while it's often thought of as a grand story, a epic, it's really an intimate character study. It's a soap opera. Yeah. You yeah. know, at its, at its yeah. most sophisticated best. But yeah. Is, and so I'm introducing it um, this weekend, along with, what do you call it, the next film? Um, Magnificent Ambersons. Magnificent Ambersons at the, this great old theater on Hollywood Boulevard, the uh, Egyptian. Oh, the Egyptian. Mm. And I'm first signing a bunch of books for an hour, and then I'm introducing to this audience who's never, most of whom they checked, have never seen either film. And that's going to be very interesting. Really? Yeah. Talking to them and then answering questions and having them watch on the big screen these two films. The nice thing about all the, what's happened with the book, I think, is that it's, it's opened up a tremendous interest in Arsenal again and especially among younger people who had known him as a kind of buffoon who was selling bad wine on television, you know, and, and not understood the whole nature of, of uh, an artist's career and what the arc of that is and in, a, in, a, in a capitalist society, in a society where it, it, 
you are not supported by the government at all. Well, well, the the supposed arc in Orson's career was that, you know, he peaked really early with Citizen Kane, and then it was all downhill, including the Magnificent Ambersons, where he had started, it started really well, but it ended up being finished by the studios. But the work work is not downhill. I think that's the common mythology. The work of his films were not downhill. It wasn't like they got worse and worse. The circumstances under which he had to make them, the money which he had to make them, the inability to have final cut, when he had had it on Citizen Kane. Right. All of that c- contributed, plus the lack of money coming in and his need to, to try to, you know, hustle people to get the final financing. All of that contributed to the decline, and yet he managed to make his great Shakespearean films. He, you know, he managed to do F for Fake, which I think is one of the, a masterpiece of, of, of improvisation I, I I don't think he made like less than wonderful films. I think he made eight or ten just sensational pieces of work, but they're under very different circumstances than the mass success of Kane, which itself was not a success, of mm-hmm. course, and which never made a penny, mm. which which sort of determined his whole the course of his life. By the way, F for Fake, not one of his more famous films, um, came out in what nineteen seventy four something like that. Mm-hmm. So you knew him when he made F for Fake. Oh, my God, yes. And he was so happy because he said, I remember a phone call uh, from Ibiza, and he said, I think I found a way to make films where money is not the central factor, where you take collected work that exists, that's been shot, and you're able to tell a thematic story by the use of film, film that already exists to a large extent. Mm Mm-hmm. And and uh, the film as essay, he expected fully to be the what he, what he would be doing for the rest of his life because he thought he could really he could really tell his stories most successfully and most inexpensively, of course. Then and then the disaster that nobody would release F for fake and that nobody took it seriously until many years later after he died. Um, it just really was the resounding blow to his belief that he could keep functioning. Mm. Not that he ever stopped uh, you know, trying. He never failed to have plans. He had a King Lear, which was all aimed at showing how Lear was going nuts because of the absence of women in his life, because of the fact that he uh, didn't know how to deal with women. Mm. And, and, and he wanted to shoot that in black and white and, and you know, very close-ups. He had a tremendous amount of projects. He was never like down on projects. It's just like they were, nobody wanted to support him. And mm. when we finally got the deal for, when we finally got him to write the new script, I we we opened up a huge bottle of Cristal champagne. We were sure. We hey, folks! I just want to bust in here to clarify one point, and that is that the movie to which Henry Jaglum is referring uh, was to be called The Big Brass Ring a project that Orson Welles was working on but was never able to complete for reasons Henry explains here. We knew that the studios weren't going to finance him because none of his films have ever made money for studios, including Citizen Kane. But the one thing we weren't expecting was that his fellow actors, who had always celebrated him, uh, wouldn't, wouldn't throw in their hats and wouldn't participate. That They started insisting on either their old price of the price they'd earned in the business, which was three times what we could afford, or 
they were nervous about being in an Orson Welles film itself. And uh, one by one, we lost them. Uh, why were they scared off, if that's the right term? Because they had careers, because people, as Orson would say, are no longer thinking about the films they're making. They're thinking about the careers they're building. And they're working together with their agents. And they have reached the point where they get $3 million for a film. And this film costs $5 million. So they want $3 million. And uh, that included some of my closest friends. Mm-hmm. So. And um, the only one who gave him an answer that, was, that he could understand was Warren Beatty. Who, I told you, you know that story? No, I don't. Warren Beatty, everybody else came up with some bullshit. But Warren said, listen, I'd really love to, but would you tell Orson this for me? It's, he's just finished Reds. Uh-huh, right. Enormous sentiment. Yeah. And he said, I just tell Orson, it's as if I've been up all night, you know, <laughs> my brains out in a whorehouse. And I'm, 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 I'm basically just out of my mind on my way home. And there, outside the door of the whorehouse, stands Marilyn Monroe with her arms wide open. And I say to her, oh, my God, I'd love to, but I just can't. <laughs> Uh, he said, please tell it to Orson. And that was the one story Orson completely understood. <laughs> <laughs> he completely understood that. But getting back to this story, this maybe myth that Orson Welles was extremely difficult to work with, there is one episode in the book at one of your lunches. He's not difficult at that meeting. If you look at the <laughs> meeting, what he did, people keep talking to me about how difficult he was with that woman. That woman came to him with the idea of really being interested in financing something for HBO, but then she laid down a bunch of rules, which he immediately knew, because he'd had the experience. I didn't know. I thought, oh, well, this is good. Let's make this work. But she started laying down the rules. It'll be a half hour. Uh, it can't uh, deal with this. Oh, there's this nice uh, what, uh, what resort where we could shoot it. It'll be fun. And he realized immediately what I didn't. I thought he was be- behaving very badly. But as I read it now, I see he realized right away he was never going to be able to work within the parameter of that what that woman's expectations. She we was, we she, should tell our audience who we're talking about. Um, this is someone who's identified in the book as Susan Smith, a, a pseudonym, uh, an executive. She was, head, she was the head of HBO. Okay. She was the person who could <laughs> greenlight things at HBO. And when she called me and said, I'd like to meet Orson, I have a project for him. Uh, I said, that's so wonderful, I can't tell you. I mean, he's been looking for work for a long time. And we sat down to lunch, and you, you, you know the result from the book. And people, and I did kick him a few times, and I thought he was being very rude. But the essential truth was, he heard her more clearly than I did. He heard that what she was saying was, you have now to shift your entire way of working into my way of working, uh, and and you, you're going to do half-hour episodes, which was something that he abhorred because he didn't think you could begin to tell the character in a half an hour, and and he realized it was hopeless. There was no meeting of the minds possible. Mm. That didn't excuse how rude he was. He, he's several times in the book he's rude about things because he's hurt. He's a very disappointed man. He's been going through tri- meetings and try. I, I, he didn't want to have meetings anymore. I brought him back to his feet and made him sit with one, uh, I hate to say it, but one group of ass 
after another, who all started out by wanting to do a, an Orson Welles project, and then all ended up explaining why the project couldn't really be an Orson Welles project, and had to be a Hollywood project. And he said, stop bringing me these people who want me to do something that I can't do. And I can tell immediately who they are, and that's what happened with that HBO woman, and countless others that are not in the book. Mm. You know, it's funny, I, I misread it, I guess, because what I saw happen was... She seems open, right? She seems open. She makes the, I think, uncalled-for suggestion of a locale. But that's not what did it. What did it was when she said half hour. Uh-huh, uh-huh. But he says something very interesting, and again, this, this fed into my reading of it. Uh, you were encouraging him to go on. She was encouraging him to go on. The, the conversation hadn't gotten very far, and he was all ready to drop it completely. And, right. and uh, he says, I can't sell it. I'm a bad seller. When I get that dead look, I'm dead. I can't do it. When he saw that she was looking at him and there was no recognition, Yeah. That was often the case. We sat down with money people a lot, and uh, and a lot of them were very desirous of working with him. But when he got that dead look that they had no idea what he was talking about, and they were trying to squeeze him into a formula that they understood about how to work, which was just the opposite of the freewheeling way that he had to work. Mm-hmm. He he just said he had outlived the industry and what he you know. And also that it was not an industry, which God knows is true, for artists, you know. So he, he, for instance, always implored me, get your money away from Hollywood. If you get it away from Hollywood, you're essentially free to do what you want. I made all my deals with, with the Europeans and some South Americans, even an occasional Asian country, to give me a certain amount of money up front for their territory. Once I had that... I knew, okay, I only have $2 million, but I have to make the movie for $2 million. But I've got complete freedom in return, in return for that, and I own the American rights. And, and for my way of working, that was more than enough. Mm. So, so was he envious of you, do you think? I mean, you were making films at a steady pace. Yeah, he was envious of it, but he didn't want to make the movies I wanted to make. Right. So right. in that, he, was, he liked them. He sat with me for hours, my God, for hundreds. I've... I've I have a whole other series of tapes of him sitting behind me during Cherry Pie and during Always and during some of my films, guiding me and suggesting wonderful things. And he loved that, that process. Uh, he was fascinated by, by the idea that you could just you know, go on a train, meet the people on a train and tell a story about them. Or like the movie I just shot, which he had known about for years. I just finished completing day before yesterday, um, a film which I shot entirely backstage at a theater, so we never even see what's going on on stage. We get to know the actors and their relationships and the drama all off stage, never leaving the theater, however, but never being on the stage of the theater. And I remember how excited he was at the idea of that. But he said, but I can't do that because they all are expecting something from me which is going to show that I can be like Citizen Kane again. I can, I can, you know, blow the whole world's mind again. Well, that's one thing I wanted to ask you, Henry. I mean, he was he burdened by having, oh, yes. you know, bloomed yeah. at a very early age? I mean, he, this guy had already set the theater world uh, on fire in his teens. And radio. And radio, you know, and then Kane was done when he was 25 years old. Oh, yeah. So... Did he have to carry that weight around forever, having to top himself, having to do better? Constantly. 
constantly. When I came up with a really wonderful idea, like the last screenplay, got him to write it agonizingly over months period, he said, this is perfect. This is the perfect film for me to do after my next film. And I said, what do you mean after your next film? He said, well, the next one's got to show them. The next one has got to show them in their terms. It's got to be a big one. It's got to be Hollywood. And I said, why? You don't belong there. Your films don't belong there. And he said, I've got to show them that I can still do that. Then I can go and make a poetic film. Then I can go and make a truly, you know, work of art. But first I've got to show them that I can do some mass entertainment that, that they would respect. And that was his that was the weakness, in my mind, the biggest weakness that he lived with. Well, you know Hollywood firsthand. I don't. Um, but I have a sense that it's a place of incredible insecurity where people um, can be a hit one day and be, you know, yesterday's news the next day. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And I was wondering if maybe people were people were sort of afraid that he was cursed, you know, that, oh, well, I don't want to associate with... He had done it once. yeah. Uh, and even that one hadn't made money, so by the rules of Hollywood, it had been a failure, Citizen Kane. Yeah. And all he did was then hop around Europe making other films, none of which made money. Yeah. None of which yeah. made money. So they didn't. They just didn't take him seriously. They honored him. They gave him awards. They had dinners for him, but they just did not take him seriously. Well, is there is there a bit of a superstition, too? Because everybody's looking over their shoulder as to when they'll be used up. I mean, was there a superstition that, you know, this guy had it, he lost it, I don't want to be associated with that because it might rub off on me? Well, I don't know. I don't know about that. I do know that they all wanted to have lunch with him. Uh-huh. I mean, that was, their, that was, their, that was my, my phone never stopped ringing. They all wanted to get to know him. They wanted all to have him tell them his stories and so on. But yes, putting him behind the the camera, really making a deal with him, I think they all were terrified of that. Because the mythology also was, which he never did, was that he went over budget, that he did wildly, you know, all the things that people attach to idiosyncratic artists, none of which was true. He was a very, very, very penny-pinching, uh, organized you know, it was, it was not uh, von Stroheim we were talking about here. Mm-hmm. Mm. And um, it was a simple fact. The movies never made money. That's mm. all. Mm. And they were great films to be celebrated, honors to be given, but everything except for money. I, You know, I just, I still can't understand it, though. Um, you know, there are many, many movie lovers in Hollywood, along with money grubbers, right? I mean... Those people who really love the art form, why didn't they take him under their wing, give him some money and license to make what he wanted? That's a good question. I went to all of them. Because of when I had grown up in this business, by the time I had really gotten friendly with Orson, the people who were running the town were my friends. They were the people I'd grown up with, the heads of the studios, the biggest stars. So I couldn't believe that I would have any problem because they, like me, had all been spending their youth talking about Orson Welles, you know? So I, I was shocked. I was shocked to, to realize that they had all bought this bottom-line notion of filmmaking in a, in a country like Poland or a country, you know, where they support the arts and they don't do it just to make money. He would have had a completely rich and different kind of career, but mm. Hollywood was always about the bottom line. Mm. And... Um, he was not about the bottom line. He was an artist. 
There's an amazing uh, scene in the book where you're discussing your ideas for a film you were working on at the time, which is uh, Always, right. or Always But Not Forever. Yeah. Uh, and he immediately jumps in and starts, with your permission, in, in essence, rewriting um, bits. Yeah. And 90% of what he said was right, and it's in the movie, and, <laughs> and made the movie a big success. And he comes up with these ideas just instantly, it looks mm-hmm. like. Yeah. yeah. It was it that was, quick? It was like the most fertile ground for creative work. And he wasn't shy about offering them. And he said, no, no, that won't work because of such and such. And I really paid attention to him. And I made the movie that many people, are, you know, are still very profoundly, I get more letters from, from people because that movie's about two people who, who do love each other. And, you know, they, they just can't stay together for reasons that are never really clear except that they can't stay together. And he, he, he said, yes, this is the common dilemma that you face now. People used to tell each other they were having affairs. They didn't love each other anymore. But now it became much more difficult because just, especially women, after a few years, felt there's something more to life. And then they went out and, as Orson said, took five years to find out there was nothing more to life and then came back and it was too late because the per- you were involved with another person. At <laughs> well, in this conversation, you know, you're talking about um, an idea for a scenario you have where you're um, having your ex over to finalize the divorce after some years of being separated, and you're going to cook her dinner. And you say, you're going to make some mistake, like maybe you're going to get some wild mushrooms that make her sick. And he says, no, not ru- not mushrooms. They could kill her. Instead, why not make something that includes an ingredient she's allergic to and you've forgotten about it? You know, he immediately comes up with these solutions and to the story. In. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, an artist happy to be doing art again. That's what he is. That's what he was always. I showed him my rough cuts after, you know, uh, after each movie before I showed my producers, before I showed anyone else. And he was so supportive and yet so harsh about what things didn't work and why. And I went right back to the cutting room. I always took those those things very seriously because they were Orson Welles, and, mm. and he was right mostly. Mm. Uh, he had a great, great eye for what a film could be, what it could do, how it how how it could affect people, and what little changes you could make. Oh my God, my films are so full of those. And he was so generous with his time and with his energy. He just loved doing that. He felt many times like he said that he was back making films. He was filmmaking. Um, I won't be able to fit uh, a lot of the choice quotes from this book into a a radio interview, but I just want to say for the sake of listeners who haven't yet read the book that, you know, people know that he's a great talker, but some of these statements he makes are timeless. I mean, they're, they're perfectly composed pieces of wisdom on all kinds of subjects, politics, human relations, movies, of course, philosophy, um, all over the map. I mean, he was, he was a brilliant guy. He, yeah, he was a great thinker. Yeah. Great thinker, yeah. which we don't have a whole lot of in the 21st. <laughs> uh, and there were people, he, and he had prejudices, and he wouldn't let go of those. Or he just has opinions about uh, great people like Dustin Hoffman being too short. <laughs> or ethnic. Or, 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 yes, or uh, Bobby De Niro being too ethnic. Or, 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 for certain roles, yeah. For certain roles. Uh, you know, like a, a president of the United States can never look that way. Uh, yeah, I was really fascinated to, to read his um, very strong opinions, uh, usually very black and white about movies. 
so, for instance, didn't like Chaplin, loved Keaton. Um, yeah, right. Didn't like the later Hitchcock, the ones that are typically considered to be masterpieces, like Vertigo and Rear Window. Well, she, he shared that with me, so I, I, I have to defend that. Oh, okay. yeah, go ahead. Do it. I just think that uh, you know that Hitchcock's movies that he made in the early days, especially the black and white ones, were masterpieces, and that he totally sold out to to sort of Disneyland entertainment. And uh, they are, in my opinion, Vertigo is a big fraudulent film. Rear Window is an absurd film. I agree with Orson completely. As a matter of fact, we had a New Year's Eve. She and I co-hosted once in eighty eighty three, I think it was a New Year's Eve party at my house, and we got into this huge argument with uh, a large number of people about those Hitchcock films. I've never felt they were serious art, whereas his black and white films were some of the greatest films that that, uh, were being made. Um, and, And Orson felt that way as well. But now these people become, for a moment, gods and, and icons, and you, you know, saying something against them seems bitter. That, that's not where Orson was bitter. Mm. Uh, not at all. He just didn't value Hitchcock. He thought that Hitchcock had a great talent, and it totally sold out when he came to America. And I, I share that. Feeling. He didn't like uh, Michael Powell, uh, the English director of The Red Shoes. Yeah, there we had a huge disagreement, yeah, yeah. <laughs> because Powell and Pressburger are my favorite filmmakers. And, and Yours and Marty Scorsese's, too, I think. Yeah, and Marty's. And, 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 you know, The Life and Death of Colonel Limp is, for me, one of the great movies of all time. And, 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 he, and he would say, oh, twaddle. <laughs> he would just say, you're, you're just a sentimental. And then he admitted something very important. He does in the book. He said... You know, movies have to do with when you've seen them. Exactly, And yes. if you see them at the right time, you're in love with the movie stars, but you have that for life. But he talked about Gary Cooper, who he just was madly in love with, and I said, Cooper couldn't act. He, he looked like he was bumbling. He didn't look like he was an actor to me. And he said, yes, but I saw him when I was, when I was 20, and he was magnificent, and I, I held that all my life. And then I thought about actors that I feel the same way about, you know, but I could I could always watch Sinatra, no matter what he did on film. I thought he was just great, and I guess there's a there's an argument that he's not much of an actor, but I, uh, nobody's going to convince me of that. You uh-huh. know? He said you fall in love with them, and once you fall in love with them, uh, they're yours for life, and you don't see them anymore. And he felt Hitchcock very much was susceptible to that, uh, and then he was susceptible to the big Hollywood. Uh, scam as he called it and played played into it and didn't uh, didn't fulfill his promise as a filmmaker and i think there was nothing nothing in the world that disturbed orson more than somebody not trying especially somebody who had the economic wherewithal not trying to fulfill his promise hmm. that's why when richard burton came over to our table he could have, he could have been so incredibly rude to him you're eating with Orson Welles at Ma Maison, this restaurant where you dined regularly. Or oh, is that in the book? Yes, it is. And, oh. and Richard Burton comes over, and apparently Elizabeth Taylor's nearby, and he says, can I bring her over to your table? And Orson Welles says, no, as you can see, I'm in the middle of my lunch. <laughs> it was horrible, because I, I looked at him, and he had these big black boots on, because he had, he had dicey ankles. He had problems with his ankles. So he had these big, black, harsh boots on. And I kicked him in those boots, and and <laughs> when 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 uh, Burton, like a, a beaten puppy, left the table, 
I said, for fuck's sake, Orson, that's Richard Burton, and where and Elizabeth Taylor, why are you being so rude, and what are you doing? Uh, and he said, they've ruined their careers. They could have been good artists, and they've totally ruined it. He's thrown it away. I don't know. I don't want. And I, 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 I kicked him again, and he said, I don't need a Jewish Jiminy Cricket. I do not need you to be my conscience. You do that all the time, and it's irritating to me. And I said, well, don't you understand that that's building your reputation that is pushing you further and further into isolation? Because they're thinking that that's the you, the real you, instead of just the pouty child that you are, you know? And he said, well, maybe I'm a pouty child, but I know what's wrong and blah, 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 blah. And, uh, you know, he was difficult. He was clearly difficult. <laughs> I'll say. He just wasn't difficult with me. I was just one of the lucky few who, for some reason, we got along so well. You know, that's chemistry sometimes. And I think the fact that we both really loved film, and we both tried in our own way to make films, he often said that to me, even though it was completely different ways, the fact that we tried to make film for the reason of making a good film that we would like, not for the reason of some popular culture or some demographic, uh, was something that gave us a, a great bond. Uh, do you think it was a relationship of equals? or It can't be an equal with Orson Welles yeah. when, you're, when you're 33 years old, uh... years old. But it felt like equals, let's say that. I never inhibited anything I said. Uh, maybe I gave him more room to talk than I would of somebody my own age. So in that sense, it wasn't equals. But emotionally and intellectually, it was very much equals. By the way, I found uh, that exchange you had with him where you're talking about loving films at a certain age. And he says, if you see them at the right age, oh, yeah. you see them differently. You see the real value of them, what they really are. And you say, it's true. How you feel about a film has to do with how old you are when you see it. Yep. And then he goes on to say, in the theater, I can pretend that it's all happening right there in front of me, but I see movies through such a mist of years, I'm incapable of feeling the thrill of them, even the greatest ones, because I cannot erase those years of experience. Before I started making movies, I'd get into them, lose myself. I can't do that now. That's why I don't think my opinions about movies are as good as somebody else's who doesn't have to look through all those filters. I think all films are better than we think they are. Isn't that a wonderful confessional? Yeah. About how we are all subjective at a certain point. And uh, that subjectivity gets in the way of any real objective evaluation of a piece of work. It, it really um, struck a chord with me. I have a fear sometimes of going back and seeing movies that I loved at a certain age that I'll not love them from my adult vantage. Yeah, you have to turn off that adult somehow. <laughs> I, Doris Day was the hero of my childhood. And I have to watch Doris Day movies with a, a significant piece of my brain on ice, you know? And then I can I can remember what it was, but dreamy, romantic, show business playfulness that once meant so much to me. Uh, I think you just have to be you're tough on yourself when you watch them. You have to really turn into a 12-year-old. Did, did Orson put you off anybody that you had formerly loved? No. He, he <laughs> never was successful with that. And, and um, I was never successful with him because some of the people he loved was, were the corniest, worst. You know, you, you watch them work. And uh, what was that great man of a thousand faces, Lon Chaney? Lon Chaney. Well, I can't, you know, you look at Lon Chaney, and it's 
in, in our world where we've grown up with great special effects and everything, this guy changing faces, and, I mean, it just looks silly. There's a hilarious exchange uh, where you talk about uh, Lon Chaney, or actually you're talking about Charles Lawton, who played, of course, the Hunchback of Notre, yeah. uh, Notre Dame in a, in a talkie. Chaney had played him in a silent film, and um, though um, Orson respected Charles Lawton quite a bit, he says, to me, Charlie and Hunchback was the village idiot, the fellow where you say, that's the unfortunate Perkins boy. <laughs> Whereas, in fact, Lawton gave one of the great screen performances of all time <laughs> in that film. So, yes, Orson, Orson knew, however, you know, that's what was wonderful about him. He was not stuck in his opinions. He had these opinions, but he could laugh at them because he knew that they were formed by a period in time. What about his opinions that seem to have been influenced by personal experiences? Like, you know, he really disliked Chaplin uh, for personal reasons. But he right? also respected Chaplin. If you read it carefully, he thought Chaplin was a genius. He just didn't like the way Chaplin manipulated the audiences into, uh, you know, he, he used to say that Woody Allen has the Chaplin sickness. And, you know, they both want to show you their penises <laughs> and say, Look how small my penis is, and aren't I ador adorable for it? And sort of charm you with their patheticness. And uh, he said, uh, but he did not deny that Chaplin was a great artist. He just felt that he fell into this unfortunate behavior. Now, for me, when I see Chaplin doing what he's describing, I, I, I see genius. I see nothing but genius, comic genius. Was Orson not susceptible even to the final scene in um, City Lights? <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> I said to him almost exactly the same words. Okay, Orson, I was impatient one day, and I said, Okay, Orson, stop it about Chaplin. Get your head fixed. Remember the final scene in City Lights. And he said, quietly, after a beat. I'll never forget that. That's not in the book, is it? No, it isn't. He said, well... That was pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> that was pretty good. It was so sweet, you know, because he would give you a real evaluation. He wasn't just holding on to things to make points of view or like so many people to hear himself talk at all. You know, we gave a New Year's Eve party together once. Oh, I'll never forget that. We gave a New Year's Eve party at my house. He never used to go out New Year's Eve. He hid on New Year's Eve because some bad incident had happened when he was in his 20s in New York and he had gotten arrested for being rowdy on the street. And somehow New Year's Eve was not his favorite time. But I persuaded him. My girlfriend at the time was Andrea Markovici. I don't know if you know who she is. Yeah, she was uh, in uh, one um, of the movies. She's in Someone's Love. Yeah, with Arson Wells. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and she's a great nightclub singer. She sings all over America, 30s and 40s, and she's brought back, uh, you know, that kind of nightclub cabaret theater. Uh, and um, and he got she got along very well with Arson, and we were the three of us were having a very lonely Christmas dinner up at the Beverly Hills Hotel, uh, which is sort of a sad thing to where all these families around us, and we were just these three people having dinner, even though one was Orson Welles. And he said, what are you doing New Year's? And I said, we always have a New Year's Eve party with lots of people. And he said, I'm, I'm going to co-host it with you. And I said, oh, great. <laughs> and the people were stunned as they came to my house. 
my then little house, and and Orson was at the door greeting them, and he had the best time in his life, and it it, it had a lot of strange people there, including the guy. What was the guy who was who was promoting LSD? As Timothy Leary. Leary, he was there. Yeah. yeah. Wow. And <laughs> and he got to a conversation with Leary that seemed to go on for half an hour, and then he walked over to me. <laughs> He walked over to me. I was refilling a champagne glass, as I remember, and he said, "That man is a fool." <laughs> and I said, "Yes. Why were you talking to him so long? He's kind of silly." He said, "But he's silly in such an interesting way." Mm. Mm. And this was long after Leary's. Um, oh yeah, this was in hated. this was yeah. eighty or yeah. eighty-one, yeah, or something like that. right, right. But then he got into a conversation with somebody about Hitchcock. And again, he and I were the only two people in this entire party. There were 80 people or 90 people, some very prominent uh, you know, people, Jack, Warren, a lot of people. And um, we were the only two who were saying that Hitchcock was the American Hitchcock, had sold out on the British Hitchcock, and was vastly overrated, and um, people were ready to kill us, except, <laughs> except it was Orson Welles speaking. So... They weren't quite as ready to kill us. You know, it's funny. I would have guessed that he would like Vertigo. Uh, it's, it, you oh, know. he hated that one. Wow. Well, that's still in a, a minority opinion that you and he held, I think. Um, Maybe. I don't know. I just saw it again, and it's, boy, do I hold it. Really? The acting is false, and the thing is, I just don't, I, I think it's, you know, trash. Yeah. Another thing I watched uh, when going back, refreshing my memory on Orson Welles, Something I had actually never seen before, an interview he did on Dick Cavett, uh, sometime, I think, in the 1960s. Yeah, I've seen that. Uh, it's really quite an interview. Uh, it's a great interview. At one point, Orson tries to interview Cavett, yeah. Cavett which doesn't go very far, because Cavett's the... Um, <laughs> he's used to putting the questions to people, not the other way around. Right. But uh, one thing I could instantly see, at least I think I could see, in Orson Welles in that moment was how vulnerable he was and kind of lovable. I mean, he really... Yes, he was. First of all, he, he actually admired Dick Cavett and made it plain. And he, yes, he, he, that Cavett was one of the few intelligent journalists asking intelligent questions, and he loved that. Of course he did, yeah. He was a wonderful man. I mean, I just, the only thing that saddens me about all of this is I had hoped when the book came out it would show the world what a wonderful, sweet, available, intelligent, and... and terrific guy this was, my, that my friend was really not the, all the terrible, frightening things of the mythology. And unfortunately, because he said so many big things about so many people and so many dismissive things, the book has not helped that. Uh, uh, people still think of him now as uh, they like it, they're fascinated at selling like hotcakes, but, but at the same time, you know, they, 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 half the commentary is about how he's putting people down. And that's a very small part of this book, really. Yeah, I would agree with you. I mean, it's it's fun lunchtime conversation where you get to say those kinds of things. But what I really take away from the book is entirely different. First of all, just how expansive, how broad his not just knowledge but wisdom was about so many things. He could comment on literature. He could comment on arts, on, arts, on history. I mean, the stuff he has to say about politics. Yeah, well, he had seriously considered running for senator, actually, and Roosevelt wanted him to. 
Um, yeah, he talks about that, how they were thinking maybe that he would run as a Democrat in 1952 and was sort of talked out of it or um, edged away from it by Alan Cranston, who eventually became senator from California. Yeah. Uh, and Orson says something about his own prospects in politics that, again, I, I think is right on. <laughs> he says uh, something about they would have destroyed me. You yeah, know. they would have picked up things from his past, you know, they just can't, they, they, a person once, once he's been really out there publicly and open and about all kinds of things, they're, they're going to, they're, they're going to find ways to destroy them. Yes. Um, well, you know, for me, reading the book, it made me miss him as though I had ever known him. Imagine I, what it does <laughs> to me. Well, that's what I was going to ask. Yeah. Yeah, I, I pick it up at my own risk, you know, and I love it. I pick it up many, many, many times a week, and I read a, a little bit, and I, I miss him terribly. And I miss, it makes me miss other incidents. You know, he was always fighting his weight. And in Cannes, I took him to Cannes in 1983, basically to show the people at the Cannes Film Festival where a lot of the money was coming from. And we were thinking that we were going to get this film made, um, to show them that he was ambulatory, despite his secret use of a wheelchair sometimes to get around, that he was, despite his weight, that he was functioning and that he could become, you know, he could successfully uh, navigate a film physically. So I had him up on a big incline near near that big hotel, and people all flocked to him. And the most interesting thing happened: he wore a big white jacket, and he had a cigar. And an ash of the cigar fell in the jacket. And he turned to me and whispered so that all these people wouldn't hear him, Rita will kill me. <laughs> and Rita had been dead 30 years. Rita Hayward. Yeah. To whom he was married. So later at dinner, we went to these dinners at the place, this place called the Oasis outside of uh, Cannes, and we went every night. I said to him, do you know what you did there at lunch? He said, what? I said, well, you dropped the cigar, you flicked it away, and you said... To me, sort of, voce, Rita will kill me. He said, did I say that? I said, yes, that's exactly what you said. And he was with Oya at the time, you know, many, many years after Rita. And he thought for a moment, and he said one of the most touching lines I've ever heard him say. He, he said to me, well, you know, once you really love them, it never stops. And it just broke my heart, you know. Hmm. At that, at that, at those lunches, he was always showing me that he was on a diet, and all he was eating was Perrier <laughs> and a little salad and a sliver of fish. But he ordered six or seven entrees for me, five or six hors d'oeuvres, um, three or four or five desserts, and he made me taste each one of them, just a taste, to describe to him what they tasted like. And I said, Austin, I'm going to get to be, you know, as large as you. I can't do this. <laughs> He said, just a little taste, just what's the bouquet, what is the flavor? It was very touching, it was very touching. He was always trying to get, to lose that weight. And I thought I was so moved by that, and I thought, well, he's making such a great effort. And then I found out two days later, from a meeting with the chef, that he would wake the chef up at four in the morning and order six steaks and four big, big uh, baked potatoes and that's what he'd have secretly in his room. But with me, he was showing that he was just having a Perrier and a little salad and a little glass of wine. Well, I don't want to be a dime store psychologist, but, I mean, 
you read the signs, and, and it sounds like a guy who was hurting a lot. Yeah, he was hurting. He was hurting, there's no question. That's not dime, dime store psychology. That's absolutely correct perception. He was hurting. And, you know, you could never directly confront the fact that he was hurting. You could only try to alleviate it. And the main thing that would alleviate it was his being able to maintain the belief that he was going to be making something, that he was going to be doing some creative work, that something was in the pike. And so I spent all the energy I had beside making my own movies during those years uh, trying to convince him and convince myself and convince others that he would, in fact, be making another movie. And one after another, they fell through. And one after another, I tried to, to pick them back up or pick his hopes up. It just really became my job, it seemed, to not let him lose uh, belief. And he never did fully lose it. He'd lose it for a day, and then he'd call me up at 4 in the morning and say, listen to these three pages I've just written. And as soon as I told him, him that they were wonderful, he then would say, oh, they're nothing, they're no good. Why are you up at this morning? Go to sleep. He makes a really sort of desperate statement at one point that's in the book. Um, you know, if I could only get back on screen, it would save me, or something like that. Yeah. But would it have? I have no idea. Depends what he would have done. I have no idea. He got back on screen a few times, with, uh, and, and it didn't change anything. It wasn't what people wanted, so I don't know. Um, Peter Biskind, who edited the interviews down to book length, though I would have happily had it be twice as long or even longer yeah. uh, myself, Me too. chose a very, very loaded um, moment to end the book on. And this really wasn't too long, I guess, before Orson Welles died of, of a heart attack. Um, he includes this story by Orson about uh, Verdi, the composer. Yeah, uh, I, I want the Verdi ending. <laughs> he said Verdi did great work when he was young and then spent his middle years just overseeing productions of his earlier work, nothing important. And then in old age, someone came to him and said, Wagner is dead. He lit up. He did his greatest work in the following years after decades of nothing. Uh, and you said to him, who would your Wagner be? Who would have to die to set you free? And that's the, the end of the, yeah. the dialogues. Yeah, he never came up with a person. <laughs> Is there an implied answer to that question, though? Hollywood, all of it. <laughs> it's not one person. It's just the whole system that had developed. I think that's what he meant. It was a ter terribly touching moment. God, I remember that. I want the Verdi ending, he said. Mm. Yep. A comeback. Now, now you got me bummed out here. <laughs> oh, Henry, I'm sorry. Oh, it's okay. It, it's, it goes back and forth. All I have to do to get cheered up is open the book to any place and start reading. He knew so much about so much. You know, that was part of the pleasure. You could ask him about any aspect of anything. I mean, he just knew. He knew everything. I don't know why I'm getting depressed now. I'm just sort of sadly missing him suddenly. It's just very hard sometimes to come to the realization that you will not see this guy again and that you'll not have another meal because it became for for not just those three years of the recording but for about ten years it became such a staple part of my life and when my when my first marriage broke up and I was absolutely devastated and on the floor 
and not knowing what to do. It was Orson who said to me, look, if you were if you were a songwriter, you'd write a song about this. If you were a poet, you'd write a poet. You're a filmmaker. Make a film. And I said, how can I make a film? He said, call her up. She's an actress. Shoot it in the house you live in. Tell the truth. Create fictional characters, names. But put some situation where you and other people are heading like a holiday weekend, which I did. It was the 4th of July. I don't know if you've ever seen my film, Always. Mm-hmm. And he basically said, it'll free you because you get to tell each other the truth about what you're feeling. And um, yet you're making a movie, so you know that it's not real. But you're you know, saying everything that is honest and true, and we did that. And it was the most extraordinary experience. On the one hand, I felt devastated because we had this great time every day, and the crew arrived, and the actors, and it was like we were together again, and then every night she left. So I was being left again, and um, it was very difficult emotionally, but very cathartic ultimately. It was a brilliant thing for him to have, have me do. And ever since then, I've been getting thousands and thousands of emails and letters now from people who have used the film to get through that period after the end of a marriage, to get to come through it and come out the other side, as I say in the movie. And I keep thinking of Orson, sort of pushing me to do that, and in some way pushing all those people through the pain out into the sunshine, you know? Mm. It was it was an incredibly generous and, and intelligent act on his part. And I remember screening the film for him, and he was just crying. And I'd never seen Orson cry. And I said, I said, why are you why are you crying? I'd never seen him cry in a movie. And he said, because that's all of us. That's all of us. Uh, you know that, that pain. You love somebody, and it doesn't work. And they love you, and it doesn't work. And it's all of us. That's all I remember him saying. That's all of us. Hmm. And I have all those tapes somewhere of him while I'm editing him telling me all the things I'm doing wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so, so anyway. Well, Henry, I really appreciate all the time. Uh, no, my pleasure. It's nice to talk on this real kind of level about him. And I, I thank you. I'm glad that you called. Henry Jaglum. His films include A Safe Place, Sitting Ducks, Can She Bake a Cherry Pie, Someone to Love, Always, and most recently, Just 45 Minutes from Broadway. You can learn more about his movies at rainbowfilms.com. And the new book, collecting some of his conversations with Orson Welles, is called My Lunches with Orson. It's edited and has an introduction by Peter Biskind. This has been the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. You can always visit us online at 7thAvenueProject.com. And uh, before I go, uh, I'd just like to end with one of my favorite examples of Orson Welles' work from my own medium, radio. And this isn't one of his famous dramas with the Mercury Theater on the air, but rather a little excerpt from a program called Orson Welles Commentaries. The show was broadcast by ABC Radio in 1946, but was canceled after a short run, perhaps because Welles's fiery, left-leaning opinions offended the sponsors. Well, the bit I'm going to play here comes from a series of commentaries he did on that show about an incident that outraged many people at the time, the blinding of Sergeant Isaac Woodard. Woodard was a black World War II vet coming home from the Pacific. He was riding a Greyhound bus through South Carolina, and he had a tiff with the bus driver, 
who didn't want to wait while Woodard went to the bathroom. The argument ended peacefully, but uh, the bus driver apparently was offended and called the police, who met Woodard in the next town and proceeded to beat him until he was blind permanently, presumably for the crime of being uppity. And by the way, the beating took place in Batesburg, South Carolina, but early reports mistakenly identified it as the town of Aiken. So you'll hear Orson Welles talk about Aiken, South Carolina. And the guy who did the beating was a then-unnamed police chief, ultimately revealed to be Linwood Shull, but who Orson Welles refers to as Officer X. Wash your hands, Officer X. Wash them well. Scrub and scour. You won't blot out the blood of a blinded war veteran. Nor yet the color of your skin, your own skin. You'll never, never, never change it. Wash your hands, Officer X. Wash a lifetime. You'll never wash away that leprous lack of pigment. The guilty pallor of the white man. We invite you to luxuriate in secrecy. It will be brief. Go on. Suckle your anonymous moment while it lasts. You're going to be uncovered. We will blast out your name. We'll give the world your given name, Officer X. Yes, and your so-called Christian name. It's going to rise out of the filthy deep like the dead thing it is. We're going to make it public with the public scandal you dictated but failed to sign. We pause now for a word from the philosophers. A short reminder regarding the matter of payment and cost. Nothing is paid back. That does not happen, not on earth. A favor cannot be paid back, neither can a wrong. We say a criminal pays for his crime when we lock him up, that a murderer pays for his murder when the state murders him. But really, the state is hiding an unsightly object. Society is merely sweeping its dirt under the carpet. We may sometimes manage to cure the thing called crime... But the man called a criminal is never punished. He can be inconvenienced or tormented or done away with, but he cannot pay for what he has done. If the ledger is ever balanced, it is not by him, but by some other man having nothing to do with him. It is balanced by deeds of virtue, by unrelated good works. The evildoer's agony doesn't show on the books. Only that fiction known to us as money can be paid back. The true debt, the debt of a friend to a friend or a foe to a foe, outlives the principles involved. So much for payment. Price. That's something else. There's a price for everything. There's nothing that does not have its cost. Joy and inspiration and mere pleasure have a market value precisely computed in terms of their opposites. The cost of youth is age. The cost of age is death. You want love? The cost of love is independence. You want to be independent, do you? Then pay the price and know what it is to be alone. Your mother paid for you with pain. Nothing, nothing in this living world is free. The free air costs you the life-consuming effort of breath. Freedom itself is priced at the rate of the citizenship it earns and holds. What does it cost to be a Negro? In Aiken, South Carolina, it costs a man his eyes. What does it cost to wear over your skeleton the pinkish tint officially described as white? In Aiken, South Carolina, it costs a man his soul. Officer X may languish in jail. It's unlikely, but it's possible that he'll serve as long a term as a Negro would serve in Aiken, South Carolina, for stealing bread. But Officer X will never pay for the two eyes he beat out of the soldier's head. How can you essay the gift of sight? What are they quoting today for one eye? An eye for an eye? A literal reading of this mosaic law spells out again only the blank waste of vengeance. We've told Officer X that he will be dragged out of hiding... We've promised him a most unflattering glare of publicity. We're going to keep that promise. We will build our own police lineup 
to line up this reticent policeman with the killers, the lunatics, the beast men, all the people of society's zoo where he belongs. If he's listening to this, let him listen well. Officer X, after I've found you out, I'll never lose you. If they try you, I'm going to watch the trial. If they jail you, I'm going to wait for your first day of freedom. You won't be free of me. I want to see who's waiting for you at the prison gates. I want to know who will acknowledge that they know you. I'm interested in your future. I will take careful note of all your destinations. Assume another name and I will be careful that the name you would forget is not forgotten. I will find means to remove from you all refuge, Officer X. You can't get rid of me. We have an appointment, you and I, and only death can cancel it. 